Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So, uh, where was I? How do we know if it's working? Oh yeah, so last night we were having a conversation. You know, someone says, how do you know if your practice is working? It's a good question. Mm-hmm. So I kept thinking about this. So I'm gonna, I'd like to offer some suggestions about how you know if your practice is working. So first, um, uh, if you practice learning how to be with your experience, then you'll have a greater capacity for the transient nature of the self good states and bad states. You'll be able to hold good states and bad states. I know, you probably notice this in people's personality. Certainly any of you trained in psychology, I know a few of you are. Um, if somebody comes into you for therapy and uh, you ask them about their father and they just say, you know, my dad was really an awful guy, you know, uh, he, he, he was really emotionally abusive and uh, he never said a kind word to me you know, and, and this story goes on and that's how they describe their father um, that's one thing somebody else can come in and they can say my dad was a really abusive guy you know, and, but his dad was also like that and you know, once in a while like on my birthday my dad just threw out all the stops and he always gave me a gift, like exactly the thing I was thinking. You know? In other words, in the second example, mm-hmm. you can see the good side and the bad side. And they can both be really intense, actually. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's, there's an ability to see multiple sides of something. And I think this is directly related to the ability to see multiple sides of one's own self. That actually, when you sit, you start seeing that you're not one thing. That you're constantly changing into different modes of being. And you don't cling to one way of being yourself. And this directly translates into seeing other people that way also. And I think you can also uh, enjoy yourself more. And if you want to know if that's happening, every couple of years, check in to see if you have a balanced view of your parents. Or if you're still telling the same story about each parent that you told a decade ago. And, you know, this is the sign of being frozen, which is the same sign as trauma, right? I mean, when there's trauma... You, the problem with trauma is you go off into a story and you can't get back to a balanced view. 
Like, you know, when you look at a diamond, it has so many sides. So you can never see a whole diamond. You always have to keep turning it to see the diamond. And it's exactly the same way with yourself and with other people. You have to keep changing your angle or, or changing yourself to see the complexity that is a person. But at the bottom, you can't ever really know anyways. You can't ever know yourself, so you can't ever know somebody else. That's good news. How many of you are in a relationship where you still sleep in the same bed? You don't have to put up your hand. There's a joke I always give people. And I say, when you wake up in the morning, you should look over at your partner and say to yourself, Who is this person? And whose bed am I in? I really mean that. I mean, you think, oh, that's really funny. But actually, this is a really nice way to start your day. It's like, whoa, who is that? Just start again. So that's the first thing, is that a sign your practice is working is that there's a sense of self-transience that yourself can, can transform into other selves and you can be different people. And this is true in terms of your career or your sexuality or your relationship with money or like every aspect of yourself can be more fluid so you can be more like a river and less like an ice cube. Oh, this is such good news. Yes. Yeah. So, second... The body. Um, You will develop a relationship with your body where you'll see two things. One is that your body is not yours. And second, that your body is yours. In other words, you'll start to have a relationship where your body is not so alien. In other words, your body is felt as something that should be taken care of. Um, This is a problem you see a lot um, clinically, um, where more and more people treat their body as alien to them, cutting it, hurting it, starving it, over-exercising, perfecting it, like... I'm not an anthropologist, but I'm going to guess that even a hundred years ago, people felt like they got the body that they got, and you might do some things with it, but you kind of have the body you've got, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. I mean, of course, every culture has always manipulated the body or costumed the body in some way, but in our culture, like, I get a sense like my grandparents felt, or my great-grandparents felt, like, You kind of have the body that you have. And like there's only so much you can do with it. And that's why when I'm teaching yoga, I'm always reminding you of your genetics. (laughs) Like there's only so far that it's healthy to get flexible. And there's a certain point where you shouldn't try to be more flexible. Then your genetics allow you because then you start ruining uh, tendons and weakening joints. 
So, uh, your body becomes something that you feel like you really want to take care of. And then, if you keep staying with that thought, your body becomes the earth. And you treat your body like you treat the earth. And you treat the earth like you treat your body. Number three. This could all be problematic, but I just did this last night. So, Number three, uh, resilience. It will become easier to work with impermanence, with change. If you uh, are somebody who's really frozen, keep repeating the same stories again and again, and you have no way to work that with that, then when there's a big change in your life, uh, your immune system will crash. And every time there's a big change, you'll get sick. Or you'll act out in some way. They say that if you have had a deep trauma in your first five years, that it's very, it takes a lot of work later in life to become resilient. That's old thinking. I don't think that's true. I think that you can have trauma anytime in your life, and resilience becomes really hard. Um, so you need a, a way to work with it. You know. Anyways, trauma aside, people are so fragile. We're all so fragile. I mean, we come around thinking, you know, we're really like great and everything, but we're all deeply fragile. And uh, so because of that, it's good to sit still and learn uh, how to be with all kinds of mental states. You know. Because then, uh, when the difficult ones come, you can bounce back more easily. There's this phenomenon these days of mindful parenting. You heard about this? Drives me crazy. It's another way of making parents feel like they're not good enough. I should be more mindful with my kids. But really, to be mindful with your kids doesn't mean, and I'm not talking about those of you who are parents, anybody who spends time with kids. It doesn't mean like you should like always be like looking them in the eye and like slowly with them. Come on, let's walk really slowly down. Feel every step. Inhale when you're stepping. You know, exhale. Being mindful with kids means when you do something stupid, you can uh, recover really quickly. That's what mindfulness means as a parent. It means when you screw up, you can recover really fast. Oh, that was such a stupid thing to say. That was my dad speaking. And then, you, and then it's okay. And then you, 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 you work on it again right away. You respond a different way. And you don't like beat yourself up. Oh, God, I'm such a terrible parent. You know, I lost my cool. And then we really need our kids to see us like as crazy people sometimes because then they can be crazy. You know. So... So this is one, two, th- third point, is resilience. That your resilience will increase. I don't know if there's a funny, I don't believe you keep hearing resilience. Yeah, so you will become more Brazilian. 
Yeah. Yeah, if you have any hair on your body, it will just suddenly disappear and you will be, have a prepubescent body and can go to the beach. Number four. Um, Self-esteem. Um, your self-esteem will become more reliable. Uh, you will not attack yourself so easily. You won't hurt yourself if you've done something wrong. Uh, it's not easy to let go of our self-critical function. But when you sit still, you start to see that if there's self-judgment, it's easy to judge the self-judgment. But that's not mindfulness, because that's judgment. So that's a helpful way of starting to work with self-judgment. Nowadays, um, we're recovering from a time, I think an era, where all anybody talked about in psychology was self-judgment. If you actually go online and you look up Buddhism, mindfulness, or psychology, anything you read by an American writer will be about working with self-judgment. That's almost not an exaggeration. It's the thing, it's like the, the epidemic that everybody's been working with. But now I think we've gone too far. And now we're over-correcting we're self-correcting to such a degree that all we're doing with young people is praising them like crazy. <laughs> Parents go to school and hear from, their ki from the teacher that the, that the kid's not doing well in such and such a subject. And they come home and they tell you know, the family, oh, I don't know what the teacher's thinking. You're doing just great. Don't you worry about it. You're great, you know. And then... The kid doesn't know how to develop discipline and doesn't know how to work with praise because they're being praised all the time. And then praise becomes empty. It doesn't have any meaning because it's not reserved for the times when something special is happening. It's all the time. And that's the self-correcting of too much negative self-talk. So... I think when you can learn how to be with your experience and you can learn how to be with your experience in relationship, then your self-esteem um, is more reliable. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, this is the last one. Uh, values. If you have a practice, your values um, and your actions will be connected. There is something really wrong when somebody can get along with other people, but their values are not connected at all to what they say. And maybe the best example of this is Bernie Madoff. He got along really well with people, and he stole their money. 
because he had no internal gyroscope for what the ethical thing to do would be. Um, this is called a psychopath. Uh, it's somebody who only has a relationship with their own power because they feel powerless. And in psychology, it's considered an attachment disorder. In other words, you can't make a bond with somebody else, so the only bond you can make is with your own power. And this is the Bernie Madoff situation. Everybody know who Bernie Madoff is? Yeah. No? Does anybody want to explain who Bernie Madoff is? He was an investor, um, and he had high-power relationships with celebrities and other wealthy people, and he just milked them for all their money. And he just went to prison for it. Yeah, really scammed yeah. people out of their entire life inheritance. And, and Bertie Madoff is <clears throat> symbolic of a culture of CEOs that we've accepted as a culture. Because it used to be, now I don't know anything about business, so I'm, this is all bullshit, but this is my analysis, is that it used to be that the characteristic of a CEO of a, of a banking organization, for example, is somebody who's obsessive compulsive. That used to be the characteristic of a leader of a big corporation. Now the characteristic of a CEO is a narcissist and a psychopath. Somebody in love with their own power. And the shareholders are supporting this. You know. um, so if there's a spectrum of narcissism to psychopath, they're somewhere in the middle. And they have this attitude where I don't care if I lay off 8,000 people. Right. Or I have the taxpayers foot the bill of the bonus. It's not that a CEO doesn't have to make a decision to lay off 8,000 people. It's the laying off 8,000 people and not caring. Yeah. In a private life, that person... Uh, that person goes into therapy because their partner makes them go into therapy. And what always happens with that kind of personality in therapy is that their partner feels that, they're, that, that he or she is invested in the relationship and they're not. But they can't be invested in the relationship because they're only invested in their own power. You see, and they have and the and the characteristic of that personality is a lack of remorse. And if you want to know more about this, because it's beyond the scope, there's an amazing book that describes this that you should read called Snakes in Suits. Mm -hmm. Has anybody ever read this book? Yeah. It's really interesting. Anyways, um, how did I get onto that? Oh, yeah, values. <laughs> yeah, that your values and your actions are synchronized. 
are synchronized. So, in a way, you can sum all of this up as not clinging. You know, every eight seconds, our face changes, apparently. This is what Paul Ekman says, a researcher. Every eight seconds, the emotions in your face change. And then if the emotions in your face aren't changing every eight seconds, there's a kind of frozenness in your personality. So we're learning uh, through relationship, through our practice, how to become much more fluid. Do you have your hand up? Yeah. I'm um, wondering, I don't know if time to this, but the, the question of psychopathy and whether or not it's something that can be worked with or is it static? Like if, if you're in a relationship and someone is you know, business or otherwise and someone that's yeah. displaying characteristics of psychopathy, is that something that can, you can have hope for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, when I was training in psychology, my supervisor told me a great story about working with a guy in prison who was a psychopath. And uh, it was really hard to reach him because he was way smarter than she was. So she, he was really clever. And one day uh, um, he said to her, you can't help me because like, I totally get you. And she said, you're right. She said, but the only difference between you and me is that you're behind bars. <laughs> and then she got him. She won him over. So there has to be a way of the psychopath seeing in the person who's working with them the capacity for being a psychopath. Right? Just like um, the job of a therapist is to mirror somebody enough that a relationship can happen. But that's true in all of our relationships, right? You have to get to the level. So I think of this like with kids, you know. If you approach a kid straight on, and you're standing up here, and they're down there, then they tend to not talk to you. You have to like get down on one knee, and you have to get at the level, and then you can talk to them. So with a psychopath, there, you have to find a way to be able to get onto their level. And maybe you have to discover something they love. And you have to love that with them. Um, the only personality that I think can't be helped is uh, narcissism. In my experience, that's the hardest. It's the hardest personality to work with. But psychopath, I think it's possible. So there's still some room for CEOs to... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was such an exaggeration, but... I'm just trying to point out, you know, the kind of culture sometimes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so the last thing I'll, I'll say is that... Uh, in, in the Theravada school of practice, this practice is called vipassana. 
or in Pali, vipassana. A V means to go in, and pasha is an I. So often it's translated as insight. Right? To really, to go in and really look closely. And in a way, that's what we're doing. We're stopping and we're looking more closely at our experience. And whenever you have insight, it always feels healing. You see something about yourself or something about reality from another point of view that came from the other side. It didn't come from your thinking. And the ability to have insight increases your capacity to understand yourself, but also to understand other people. So, then the Buddha says, I just, oh, remember we're studying a text here? <laughs> as long as my knowledge, oh, I'll start from the beginning. So this is the, the other half of the page, the, the first page, we're still on the first page. We're, not, we're never going to finish this. So he says, uh, this is suffering, it can be fully known. This is dukkha. And you could substitute anything. This is joy. It can be fully known. This is peace. It can be fully known. This is grief. It can be f- I can fully know this. That's a radical thing, I think, to have this attitude. This is my life. I can fully sit in this. This is the arising. It can be let go of. Does everybody have a copy? It has been let go of. This is the ceasing. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. This is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. And there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. In other words, insight. Then he says, As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the four, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such an awakening? The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. So there's a note here. What are the 12 ways? The, the recognition, performance, and accomplishment. Right? So three tasks for each four injunctions. But... Let me give you another spin on what the Buddha is saying here, because it can sound a little bit dense. What he's saying into, what did he wake up to? He woke up to the performance of the four tasks. This is really important because of colonial uh, mining of the Buddhist spiritual tradition, we have this idea of enlightenment. Right? But do you ever ask... Well, what do you wake up to? Mm -hmm. Right? 
we have this idea, oh, you just, you have a, an awakening. So whenever you hear someone says, say awakening, you should ask yourself, awakening to what? Like, what did you wake up to? And so here the Buddha is saying, what did I wake up to? I woke up to the four tasks. Embracing life, right? Letting go of craving, experiencing stopping, and cultivating the path. That's what he woke up to. It's really important. <laughs> Otherwise, you get hippy-dippy spirituality. Man, I'm just going to wake up. I'm going to have an awakening. But the Buddha said, well, I woke up to the four. And then he says, but as long as I didn't recognize the three aspects of the four, I can't say that I've had an awakening. This is good, isn't it? Mm -hmm. This is juicy. So as long as I didn't recognize the three aspects of the four, I didn't have an awakening. What are the three aspects? The recognition, the performance, and the accomplishment. Did you notice the language? <coughs> Such is the arising, it can be let go of, it has been let go of. Those are the three he's talking about. Right? This, so, this is boredom. The reactivity to boredom can be let go of. It's been let go of. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The three aspects of each task. And this is his definition of freedom. To be able to have the three aspects of each task. Then... Here comes the best part. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. And while he was speaking, another student, Kondana, says, another student, Kondana, has an awakening. So this is a really important story. So, <clears throat> um, Kondana um, was somebody who was a peer of the Buddha. He was older than the Buddha. And he was a top scholar. He was an aristocrat. And he was a scholar in the Vedas. In other words, he really knew the religious tradition of the time inside out. And when the Buddha was born, um, it took his parents 20 years to conceive of a baby. Took them a long time to. With, back then, that would have been a very long time. Mm -hmm. And when he was born, uh, the parents asked the scholars to come around and predict the destiny of the baby. This was a, a practice that would happen all the time for all kinds of babies. And this guy, Kondana, he predicted that the baby would not become part of the aristocratic family, would not pursue politics and would instead become a renunciate. Mm -hmm. And that day when Kondana left the ritual, Kondana vowed to himself that if Siddhartha ever walked away from his family, if he ever walked away from this, this expectation of what he should continue in terms of the family's practice, that he would go follow him. Mm -hmm. 
So 29 years later, when the Buddha left his family, um, Kondana went with him. And Kondana was one of five people, all scholars, who went with the Buddha and started doing the ascetic practices, learning chanting, mantra, pranayama, fasting, all of these different uh, ascetic practices common to that time, different kinds of meditation on light, on the, on the formless realms, um, dream work, you know, all this. But then, and I think I told you this story the first night, but then one day the Buddha said, all of these practices we're doing, they're not going to bring freedom. And he decided to leave and Kondana was really angry. And Kondana felt that the Buddha had completely turned his back. So imagine Kondana, like your whole, you just followed the Buddha. You yeah. follow Siddhartha. Because you thought, you saw something in this kid when he was born. And then he says, these practices we're doing together. And everybody feels this, right? Like, you always feel like your practice is like so special, you know. And Kondana says, the Buddha is abandoning his path in life. He's leaving us. And the Buddha walked away from the five. He left them. So this text we're reading is called the first sermon, which I don't like that word, but because this is the first time after the Buddha's awakening that he's speaking about his, what he woke up to. And he's speaking to the five. So what happens is the Buddha gives this this talk about the noble, the noble truths, dukkha, and so on that we just studied. And while he's giving the talk, Kondana lights up and has an experience of totally shifting his view of his life. What we call an awakening. So this happens to Kondana right there. And the Buddha recognizes it happening to Kandana. So he is the first student when Siddhartha becomes the Buddha. And it's beautiful because he's known the Buddha his whole life. And this is their healing practice. And then the Buddha looks at Kandana. And you know when you see someone really get something? You can tell. So it's described as the stainless Dharma eye rose up in Kandana. And then Kandana, Kandana looks at the Buddha and says... Whatever arises, ceases. This is his insight. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever arises, ceases. Whatever arises, ceases. Yeah. Really, really talking about, you know, bonding Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult for me to rationalize it. Yeah. Anything you can say about that? I mean, I think this is the part of the story that always stands out: is the Buddha had a young baby and a partner, and he walked away. He left his family. 
And so many people say, well, he got to do that because he was the man. He got to walk away from his family. I mean, there's so many ways to critique that. Um, there's also another version, I think it's the Korean version of the story, is that um, for every practice that the Buddha did outside of his family, his wife was doing at home. And then she becomes part of the community after. <laughs> Which is also true, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I can go up into my study and write books, but Karina's downstairs nursing our little baby. So, I get to publish a book that says, oh, you know, this and that and whatever. But Karina's doing the practice with e equally or even with more depth than me. It's harder, actually, to nurse than to write books. How do you know? <laughs> <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> it's harder for a man. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think this is a valid conversation to have, and a really important conversation to have. Um, and at the same time, I think... It's also good to read the story symbolically, which is that all of us have to leave home. And um, I'm not talking just about the home that you grew up in, but even if you think about the home you grew up in, all of us have to leave home, and we have to go back. You have to, or the leaving's not complete. And also, you know, what I read is that we have to bring that to the context of the time, mm -hmm. also the culture, mm -hmm. because in India, you don't raise uh, your child just with your partner. He was, so he was a part of a big family there. Yeah. So when he left, he didn't just, you know, she was not all of a sudden alone uh -huh. and no means and no yeah. food and nothing. She was a part of this big yes. family she belonged to. Yeah. So it was not seen as a... A betrayal? Yeah, so and, it, and it was a time, too, where leaving to go do spiritual really? practice was very... That's what was happening in the yeah. culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But even now, let's forget the past. <laughs> right now, all of you have a home of some kind. You work really hard to get it comfortable. You work really hard to have a routine. We all want a rhythm. Right? Mm -hmm eat breakfast a certain kind of way, do this at this time. It's, it's important to have a rhythm, daily rhythm. And then also there's something about that rhythm that also starts to eat away at you, deep down. Because we just want pleasure, we want to know how it's going to go, don't want a surprise. How many of you in your day, there's a surprise in your day, just completely screws up everything? <laughs> You have lice? <laughs> the strike is going to continue? Right? And how we are with those experiences, I think, is also a kind of home leaving. Right? So instead of thinking of home leaving as like, oh, I physically leave home, to also see like all the time during the day you get pushed to leave your comfort zone. And like, can you do that or not? And how elegantly can you do that? Or do you freak out? You know? Do you freak out? So, um, anyways, 
let's end and have a break. No, let's have a break and not end. Let's just have a break. And um, we'll keep going after.